How does a podcast about historical footnotes celebrate its 10th anniversary? With an episode full of them, of course. Join us for a selection of historical anecdotes perfect to drop into conversation at your next party. Hello, everyone. Christine here to start off our 10th anniversary celebration. All of our current hosts are going to appear on this episode, which makes it especially exciting. And each of them has chosen two historical footnotes to share. As a result, this episode will give you 10 unique historical footnotes to represent our 10 years as a podcast. But here's a bit of background about us first. Footnoting History launched on February 2nd, 2013. At the time, we had a very large barn of hosts, topping out at 12 different historians in our rotation at once. Over time, through a lot of trial and error, we figured out our ideal team size and schedule. Five or six hosts, and episodes every other week. Years later, we added a Patreon, which offers merch and a special newsletter in return for donations that help us keep the podcast running. We thank those of you who are our patrons. You have saved our butts on the money front to stay running. And back in 2021, we added a YouTube channel, which has been a huge source of growth for us. It turns out people who love YouTube didn't necessarily know that we existed on podcast-only platforms. We also now have every single episode captioned, and they can be viewed with those captions both on our YouTube channel and on footnotinghistory.com. We have reached a point of releasing over 275 episodes and being downloaded more than 3 million times. I know I speak for all of us when I say that we are just so excited to have reached this landmark anniversary, especially as an independent podcast. And if you weren't out there listening to us and supporting us, we would not be here. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, on to this episode and my first footnote. About five years ago, I did an episode on the person who is my favorite historical footnote, Henry the Young King. Henry lived from 1155 to 1183 and was the eldest surviving son of King Henry II of England and his wife, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine. Due to his position in the birth order, he was also the heir to the English throne, a claim that his father strengthened for him when he had the young king crowned not just once, but twice, while he, that is Henry II, was still alive and ruling. The young king would never become king in his own right and is not the person known to broader history as King Henry III because he died before his father. When I talked about the young king's life back in 2017, and again when he came up in later episodes, I would occasionally mention his wife Margaret, but due to time constraints, I was never able to really indulge in talking about how tangled their marriage looks in the scheme of their family tree. So, this first footnote of the ten being offered to you today is both for my medieval royalty lovers and my fans of genealogy. We've already established that the young king's parents were Henry II of England and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Great. Well, Margaret was royal too. Her father was King Louis VII of France, and her mother was Queen Constance of Castile. Royal marrying royal. Makes sense. And we know the betrothal was a political match that was arranged when they were children. 
This was common in royal circles, as was possibly having some shared ancestors, right? Well, this one is fun to look at, I feel. So stay with me. The young king's mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, had been married to someone else before she married his father. Similarly, Margaret's father, Louis VII of France, had been married to someone else before he married her mother. The entertaining part is that Henry's mother, Eleanor's first husband, was Margaret's father, Louis VII. The two had been married for quite some time, about 15 years. However, their marriage wasn't all lovey-dovey, and it also didn't produce a male heir for Louis. So eventually it was dissolved, and they were both free to marry others. I mean, had they stayed married, none of this would have happened. Louis would go on to marry Margaret's mother, Constance, who also did not give him the son he always wanted. Louis's son, the future King Philip II, also known as Philip Augustus, was the product of his third marriage, which occurred after Constance, the second wife, passed away. Meanwhile, Eleanor went on to marry the future King Henry II of England, and she proved that although she gave Louis zero male heirs, she was very much capable of producing sons, a bunch of them actually, including the young king and his younger brothers, King Richard I, Geoffrey, Duke of Brittany, and King John. Even with all this, it's not like Henry the Young King and Margaret were blood-related. However, there were two people in the world who were siblings to both of them. You see, Eleanor and Louis VII's marriage may not have produced sons, but it did produce two daughters, Marie and Alex. So, while the Young King and his wife Margaret were not blood-related themselves, they shared a pair of older, technically half-sisters, since Marie and Alex shared a mother with the young king and a father with Margaret. Taking this all one step further, the young king's brother Richard, who became the famous crusader king Richard Lionheart, almost found himself in a similar situation. For a period of time when he was young, Richard was betrothed to Alice, Louis VII's second daughter with Constance of Castile. Had this marriage gone through as considered, and it never did, they both ultimately married others, two brothers would have married two sisters. This isn't necessarily strange, it happened in my family, but Marie and Alex would have had two of their half-brothers married to two of their half-sisters. And since we're already this far down the road, there's one more thing. The sexuality of King Richard I of England has been debated for centuries. Truly, the straight, gay, bisexual argument, it pops its head up every few years as someone puts forth their argument for one of the labels. What ties that to this conversation is that very often the person he is considered to have been in love with, and fans of the line in winter know where I'm going with this, is Philip II of France, aka Philip Augustus, aka the son of his mother's ex-husband with his third wife. While I'm not here to tell you whether or not that relationship actually happened, I am here to say, phew, despite Eleanor and Louis being exes, the political world of the day made sure their families didn't quit each other. I'm sure you can also see why I love all of that. It's so complicated and interesting, and it'd make for one hell of a set of family reunions. But also equally, you can see why it was all unable to fit in a concise, streamlined episode about the young king. Okay, deep breath. Moving on. And now for something completely different. My second footnote skips across an ocean and ahead a couple hundred years to 1844. 
January of 1844 to be exact. Having run our social media accounts for, well, 10 years now, I'm always on the lookout for things to share. I came across this one while I was poking around the historical highlights section of the official website for the United States House of Representatives. It's full of fascinating things you might not already know about, so I suggest looking at it. This historical footnote is about Dolly Madison. Although the specific title was not in wide use at the time, Dolly Madison was first lady when her husband James Madison was president from 1809 to 1817. By the 1840s, when this footnote takes place, she had been a widow for several years, but her lack of a politician husband certainly didn't mean her interest in politics waned. Dolly was a frequent visitor to places like the Capitol, and she particularly enjoyed listening to congressional debates. It was not uncommon for many people of the public to do so, and when the House of Representatives opened an area specifically called the Ladies' Gallery, she was practically irregular. The presence of the former First Lady was not lost on the Congress people of the day, and so following one of her visits, two representatives put forth a proposal to grant Dolly a very rare honor a seat on the House floor exclusively for her use any time she visited. It was unanimously accepted. Since, generally speaking, it is very rare to be granted access to the House floor when you haven't been a member of the House yourself, this was actually a high honor and token of respect. Interestingly, while we know that Dolly expressed her gratitude for the forever upfront access to one of her favorite pastimes, it was, I imagine, akin to giving me permanent fancy seats behind the home plate for the Mets. The House History Department tells us that no one knows if she ever took them up on the offer. It's entirely possible that she didn't, but I sort of hope she did. Thank you again for joining us in this celebration. I now pass you off to the hands of my colleagues, who have great stories about things like church bells and fruit, though not at the same time. Hello, listeners. Whether you've been with us since the beginning or this is your first episode, thank you for being here. I'm Lucy, and I'm going to be talking about literal footnotes. Since the best stories are always in the footnotes, I assumed when Christine and Kristen asked the rest of us to contribute anecdotes for this episode that we should share, well, our favorite footnotes rather than a more typical episode topic or outtake. I also assumed, obviously, that everyone has favorite footnotes. Personally, I thought immediately of one of my favorite footnotes from grad school. Are you ready? Here it is. To what use were these feathers put? Thrilling, right? When I was taking a grad seminar on medieval history writing with the always insightful Richard Jug, he asked all of us if we could figure out to what use the feathers were put. To the best of my recollection, we couldn't. Our best guess was that they were intended to fletch arrows with, because the mysterious feathers were part of an enormous pile of feathers, I know, this just keeps getting better, in the sanctuary of a besieged church. A besieged church, you may say? Indeed. This episode was but part of the high drama in the Chronicle of Galbert of Bruges, translated as The Murder of Charles the Good by James Bruce Ross. The original title is the murder and betrayal and slaying of the glorious Charles Count Flanders because medieval authors rarely just used one word when they could use three. This text is obviously an extremely engaging one in its own right, but Ross's footnotes make it even better and far richer in scholarly terms. When Galbert writes, 
Even in such a confined space as the tower of the church, the traitors had ordered their watches to sound the trumpets, both the straight and crooked ones, and to blow the horn every night during the siege, Ross's footnote suggests, perhaps both to keep up their courage and to harass their enemies. And indeed, straight and crooked trumpets being blown in a church tower sounds like a very harassing sort of noise to me. Moreover, Ross's footnotes, in addition to being lively and entertaining, offer to the reader of the translation insight into the complicated politics recounted by the text. When Galbert writes that the king agrees to accept a petition from the city of Bruges, with due regard, however, to his own honor and dignity, the footnote explains for the uninitiated that this is, of course, a refusal. Even details like Latin pronouns can be used to chart shifts in loyalty and influence. And a footnote to the remarkably named Hugo Snuggart says, both he and the rich knight Walter apparently hope to save their skins by supporting the movement against William. Clearly, this is popcorn-worthy stuff. And it's also an example of how a scholar's close attention to primary sources can make the stories told by those sources vivid in the present. My next footnote, or set of footnotes, is one with which I've been obsessed for even longer than the one about Galbert's mysterious pile of feathers. When I was about 15, I specifically asked for thick books for Christmas. I suspect I was 15 because my late father begged me to ask for something that wasn't books for my 16th birthday. I asked for fencing lessons. Anyway, I coveted in particular a three-volume history of the Crusades that I had seen in a book catalog. And yes, book catalogs were still a thing back then. Stephen Runciman's work on the Crusades has been called the last medieval chronicle because of its sweeping scope, unhesitating judgments, and detail-rich portraits of historical actors. In tone, in other words, it sometimes has a lot in common with Galbert's murder and betrayal and slaying. And Runciman's prose is really gorgeous, the kind of thing that frequently made me observe in grad school that I wished I could write like a judgy Englishman. In high school, though, I was equally obsessed with his footnotes, and for a very particular reason. They referenced works written in, by my count, six languages. Returning to the books, which of course I still own, for this episode, I think that was an undercount. For context, four is probably a normal number of languages for a medievalist to use. I can maybe manage five on a good day. Runciman, as a historian of Byzantium, was referencing not only English and French and German and Latin, but also Greek, Armenian, Arabic, and Syriac. Teenage me had never seen anything like this. I was in love. And yeah, in retrospect, my parents hoped that I might grow out of my medieval obsession into interest in something more practical seems really, really misguided. If you're listening, sorry, mom. Like James Bruce Ross in his footnotes to Galbert's Chronicle, Runciman uses his footnotes to compare medieval narratives and piece together facts. He also uses them to judge people. In discussing the response of the Byzantine princess Anna Komnena to the First Crusade, for instance, he writes, Anna credits Peter the Hermit with having organized the crusade, probably because her first contact with the crusaders was with Peter's rabble, who themselves gave him the credit. This quote-unquote rabble was the People's Crusade, a disastrously disorganized and infamously violent undertaking. 
As in the case of Ross's footnotes to Galbert, I love Runciman's footnotes not least because they are full of gossipy drama, aka close analysis of historical sources. In discussing rivalries between the Franks and Byzantines, for instance, he observes, there are no complaints against Tatikius and the Byzantines till the army reaches Antioch, but by that time he has become inimicus. And this is a Latin word which can mean hostile, harmful, or just an enemy. Resentment, observes Runciman, must have been growing against him to make Bohemond's propaganda so immediately successful. Elsewhere, in discussing the conduct of Stephen of Blois at the siege of Antioch, he says that one chronicler discusses his departure with regret, but does not attribute it to cowardice. Another says that he fled on the plea of illness. A third attributes the flight to cowardice, which seems to have been the general impression. The monastic chronicler Guibert Nogent, meanwhile, feels it necessary to make excuses for him. Ouch. By this time, it's probably obvious that I could go on, proving that the best stories are always in the footnotes. Until next time, and hopefully for the next 10 years, thanks for listening. Catherine de' Medici, the 16th century French queen and regent, liked to play chess. The inventory of her rooms made after her death included a book called The Game of Chess, an ebony chess set, and a lavish velvet bag trimmed with silver and silk containing a second chess set. Moreover, she was widely reputed to be a skilled chess player. Now, it wasn't entirely unusual for a queen to play chess. Catherine's contemporary, Margaret of Austria, was also a chess player. But the choice to play chess was not as simple as it might appear. Chess, you see, was not just a game. It was a mechanism to provide training in statecraft, warfare, and social hierarchies. Chess had a performative role and represented elite status. The rules and rituals of play created exclusive emotional communities, and contemporaries remarked that Catherine's love of games and hunting deepened her bond with her father-in-law, the French king. Later, when advising her son, Catherine wrote that in order to live in peace with the French, the king needed to keep them happy and keep them busy at something, and she suggested using games and leisurely pursuits for that purpose. In Catherine's court, games helped structure interactions between men and women and helped to embed expectations about appropriate conduct between people of different genders. The use of chess and other games likely helped keep Catherine's household in control and free of scandals in spite of the unusually large entourage of women who attended the queen. Chess, in particular, became a way for women to gain prestige in court, and we see that chess manuals increasingly targeted female audiences in the early 16th century. But there was a certain amount of ambiguity in gameplay. In the art of the period, games of chess between men and women were often depicted in a highly sexualized manner. And by the middle of the 16th century, there was an outpouring of publications in France that illuminate concerns about chess as an expression of female power. Some saw women playing chess as a perversion, since conventionally men were supposed to dominate military strategy. Others saw chess as a concerning symbol of the influence ladies had over kings. Indeed, the game of chess itself was changing. Initially, there was no queen in chess. There was, rather, a vizier. This changed in the 11th and 12th centuries, but the early queen was much more restricted than the modern one. 
It's not entirely clear exactly when or why the rules about her movement changed, though some historians have speculated that the increasing power of the queen may have been associated with Isabella of Castile. We do know that by the end of the 15th century, chess players in Spain and in Italy used the new rules, which were later emulated throughout the rest of Europe. By 1525 or so, the modern rules had become standard, so this is all happening in Catherine's day. Ever since then, the queen has decisively been the most powerful, though not the most important, piece on the chessboard. This message was not lost to contemporaries. And so we can see that chess and other games allowed women to participate actively in the highly regulated court environment. But it could also open them up to criticisms. If you want to hear more about games and entertainment, I encourage you to check out Christine's episode from 2013 about amusements in medieval towns. This story begins with a literal footnote. In 1634, Johannes Kepler's Somnium, or The Dream, was published posthumously. While Kepler is best remembered as the astronomer and mathematician who came up with the planetary laws of motion, this book is considered by many to be one of the earliest examples of science fiction. The book has a fictional wise woman who communes with the devil and who was vaguely modeled on Kepler's mother, Katerina. And when it was published, Kepler added a footnote reading, You would think a spark had fallen upon dry wood. My words had been taken up by dark minds which suspect everything else of being dark. What did he mean by that? Well, Kepler was referring to his suspicion that an early draft of his work might have imperiled his mother by associating her with witchcraft. We have talked a lot about witchcraft here on Footnoting History over the years, but I don't think we've told you the story about Katharina Kepler. You see, Johannes did not have an easy childhood. His father was a volatile alcoholic who eventually abandoned his family, and his mother wasn't much better. She was consistently portrayed as vicious and ill-tempered, and by 1615, she was in her 70s, which would have made her one of the oldest residents in her town. She was still known, in spite of her age, or perhaps because of it, for her sharp tongue. So it's not really surprising that when the witch craves swept through her hometown in Germany in 1615, that she was among the 15 women accused of witchcraft especially given that she had recently had a conflict with Ursula Rheingold, the prosecuting magistrate's beloved cousin. Twenty-four witnesses, including Katharina's son Heinrich, came forward to accuse Katharina of being a witch, citing evidence that she magically appeared through closed doors, that she had hit a young girl on the arm and caused excruciating, inhuman pain, and that she had paralyzed the schoolmaster with her enchanted wine. By then, Johannes Kepler had assumed the position of imperial mathematician to Emperor Rudolf II, a position which, you might remember from my old episode on Tycho Brahe, he had inherited from his old mentor in 1601. But the astronomer rushed to his mother's defense, little knowing that her case would go on for the next six years. Luckily for Katharina, while she was threatened with torture, her son's support prevented her prosecutors from actually torturing her. In the end, while eight of the 15 women from Googligan who were accused of witchcraft lost their lives, Katharina was not one of them. She was acquitted and released in October of 1621 by the order of the Duke of Württemberg, who had once been the young Kepler's patron. Katharina died the following year. 
When Johannes returned to his academic posting, he never told anyone why he had left so suddenly, lest the stain of witchcraft also impact his reputation. And if his footnotes in Somnium are any indication, maybe he felt some guilt for his possible role in his mother's ordeal. Hey footnoters, Josh here. I can't believe that footnoting history is 10 years old. Before I jump into my footnote, I'd like to give you a personal one. Long-time listeners will know that I'm pretty new to the podcast. I actually met the footnoting history crew through a friend of a friend. I was attending school in Hawaii at the time, and I was applying to graduate school. I'm a medievalist, of course, so I applied to Fordham. And my Hawaii friend introduced me to one of his Fordham friends so I could ask questions. See, I have this weird connection with Fordham. I applied twice and pursued other institutions twice, but UNC ended up doing a lot of work with Fordham and admitted several Fordham graduates while I was in the graduate program at UNC. And of course, so many of our footnoting history hosts went to that institution too. So it kind of feels like I went to Fordham in sort of a passive way. Hopefully my Fordham attending co-hosts accept me as one of their own. Well, when the podcast premiered, I made sure I subscribed and I listened to episodes while driving back roads at night between College Station and Houston, Texas. I'll always associate our podcast with that drive. I want to say that I listened to Nicole's episode on the French silversmith at the Mongol court, but I'm not 100% certain. Speaking of the Mongols, and how is that for a perfect segue? My story comes from my dissertation research, which, lo and behold, considered European Latin Christians who lived in Mongol-controlled lands. If you listen to my episode on the Papal Fleet, you'll know about 14th century crusade proposals called Recuperatione de Terrae Sancti, on the recovery of the Holy Land. In that century, the 14th century, a Dominican friar named William of Adam wrote such a treatise with a truly awful title, quote, How to Exterminate the Saracens, unquote. Really awful stuff. Well, in the treatise, William discusses the relationship between the Sultan of the Mamluks in Egypt and the Khan of the Golden Horde. They were a little bit more north of Persia. Well, a reminder, the Latin West absolutely hated the Mamluks. Well, since the Latin West was attempting to court the favor of the Ilkhans, another group of Mongols that occupied Persia, who were just so happened to be at war with the Golden Horde, William made some pretty astounding claims about the two, including the trafficking of young boys and girls as sexual slaves. But what kind of stood out to me about this treatise was that William of Adam accused the Khan of the Golden Horde of forbidding the use of Christian church bells and ordering Islamic fakirs, kind of like monks, to steal and destroy any church bells that they found. William doesn't really expand on why the Khan would do such a thing, and only offers that their seizure and destruction caused great scandal and grievance among the Christians living in the Khan's realm. 
And who knows if it's actually true. But you know what? I kind of sympathize with the con here. These rabble-rousers ringing their infernal bells at all times of the day and night, interrupting important things like nap time and such? I'd want to throw them in the sea too. Also, I imagine these Latin Christians donning American-style cowboy hats, spitting tobacco, and saying, Come and take it, as we Texans are wont to say. This is what happens in my brain, folks. It's a scary place, but uh, I'm rarely bored. Well, I went on a day-long wild goose chase trying to find out why this might be a thing, and I didn't find much. It ended up just being a footnote in the dissertation. Maybe I'll come back to it someday. Well, happy 10th anniversary, footnoting history. May the next 10 be just as interesting. Hello, footnoting history friends. It's Kristen here. And I know I usually start my episodes by calling you friends, but it's not simply for the alliteration, but it's a little bit for the alliteration. I genuinely love spending time with my friends talking history. And that's you. Thank you so much for hanging out with us here at Footnoting History. We're a podcast now with a robust YouTube channel, but we see you and we love that you're here. My first footnote is something that I find absolutely fascinating and yet have not been able to work into any episode yet, though God help me, I've tried. If you've been listening for a while, you may know that I find culinary history super interesting, so I read a lot of it. And one thing that I've come across, usually in the context of how different cuisines started to travel the world with the advent of European colonialism in the 18th and 19th centuries, is how people used to rent pineapples for their parties. The British especially really got into pineapples in the 1770s, and the phrase a pineapple of the finest flavor became a thing you said when you wanted to say something was just the best. And look, I get it. I love pineapple, but only really fresh pineapple and preferably one that I don't have to cut up myself. That's almost definitely not what was happening in Britain in the 1770s. Unless you were really rich. Maybe. So here's the thing. People figured out pineapples were delicious, but most of them couldn't afford to eat them all the time. This is probably not a shock to anyone, but pineapples don't do so well in colder climates. And while there were hothouses built especially for growing them, that meant that they were pretty spendy. If you were rich, great, have a pineapple at your fancy party, but for most people who wanted to participate in the pineapple craze and showcase their hospitality, for which pineapples became a symbol, you rented one. The same party pineapple might make it to multiple occasions before it rotted, and no one ever actually ate it. Which is more than kind of a shame that they went to waste like that, but I guess they did get a lot of use, even if that use wasn't too actually eat them? What I always wonder is, what if someone at your party asked for a piece of your rental pineapple? Good manners probably meant that they had to slice it and serve it, and then you were on the hook because that rental pineapple wasn't getting returned, and 
maybe it wasn't even that great by that point, and then it really wasn't worth it. I'm not kidding you. Every time I buy a pineapple, I think about this. And now, so will you. The other thing I wanted to tell you is where Newport Gardner's music school was in Newport, Rhode Island. If you don't know who Newport Gardner was, please go listen to my episode on him or look him up because everyone should know about this guy. Newport Gardner was awesome. He became one of the most prominent members of Newport's free black community in the 18th and early 19th centuries, and he was an immensely talented musician. Newport Gardner is probably my favorite episode. Maybe we aren't supposed to pick favorites. Our episodes are kind of like our children, but we all know parents have their favorite kids, even if they say they don't. And Newport Gardner is mine. I learned the most researching him, and honestly, I'm very grateful to him for that. Every time I'm in Newport, I try to visit his places, Pope Street, where he lived, somewhere. We haven't been able to really nail a specific address down for that. The place where he ran his shoeshine business, Gardner's Wharf, which is based on old maps. Now the location of a super bougie hotel, 41 North. They have excellent overpriced drinks, by the way. And Newport Gardner's Music School, which stands at 47 Division Street today. It's this two-story, now blue colonial home with a sign outside that says it was Peter Bohr's house, circa 1760. I couldn't really tell you who Peter Bohr's was, except there was a Peter Bohr's around this time who was a pretty big deal. He was a merchant and a justice and was a leading member of the Redwood Library. I'm not really interested in this guy, though. I care about Newport Gardner. A few summers ago, I did a walking tour led by the Newport Historical Society that was focused on the history of African Americans in Newport. Because this is what I do on vacation, I go on history walking tours. I'm a super cool person and you're not surprised. And then, full disclosure, I went and got one of those overpriced drinks at the former Gardner's Wharf. No regrets. But in any event... The tour guide pointed out that 47 Division Street was the location of Newport Gardner's music school, and that he taught on the second floor. It's a private residence now, two apartments, about 1,600 square feet, five bedrooms and two baths, no parking. And yes, I looked on Zillow. Zillow also says that it was built in 1987, but we know better, and also there is obviously a driveway next to the house that has a car parked in it, so life lessons, folks, you can't always trust Zillow. But if you ever do find yourself in Newport, Rhode Island, and you'd like to see Newport Gardner's music school, take a walk down Division Street and imagine you can hear him playing from a second-story window. I always do. Thank you so much for listening. Whether you've been with Footnoting History since the beginning, sometime in the middle, or are just tuning in, we are so glad we are able to share our love of history with you and hope you'll stick around with us for another 10 years. You can find us on social media as Footnoting History. Please check out our website for links as well as a calendar for upcoming podcasts. And remember, the best stories are in the footnotes.